Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Jake Remit on the show. He's also a coach at Data Driven Strength. He's a PhD student at the FAU Muscle Physiology Lab with Mike Zerdos, and we dig into how did he get into academia and bodybuilding, what was the root of that, and then we dig into what his current dissertation project is looking like, and I think it's of particular interest to a lot of the listeners, me as well, because it digs into some tools that we're using to auto-regulate our training, and it might prove to provide some validity towards those, or maybe not. And then we dig into some recent published research by him, where he looked into the accuracy of predicted intraset reps and reserve in single and multi-joint resistance exercises amongst trained and untrained males and females. And there were some really interesting outcomes, and we kind of talk about the practical relevance of that study too. And guys, if you enjoy this, please do make sure to let us know whether or not that be a review or a thumbs up or a rating. All of that is highly appreciated. Of course, subscribe if you haven't already and share it with anyone you think might benefit from the podcast. This allows the podcast to grow and that's important for us to get on the best guests and continue it moving forward and helping us along the way. So without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Jake Remmett on the show. Uh, I've known Jake and followed Jake for quite a while, so it's it's great to actually be chatting face-to-face here. I already kind of feel like I know him, that's always nice, but he is a coach at Data Driven Strength. We would have had our podcast with Zach that came out recently and his meta-aggression on reps in reserve and the impact on hypertrophy. And we're going to be talking about maybe some reps in reserve here with Jake as well. He's been doing his own research. He, he just recently published his first paper as well, which is exciting. He's also a PhD student at the FAU Muscle Physiology Lab over there with Zodos and Co., uh, which is awesome because, yeah, I mean, a lot of the listeners will know Mike and uh, will have listened to a lot of his content and read it over on the Mass Research Review. So he's got to be one of the best people to be learning under. I imagine that's incredible. And Jake is also a, a fellow bodybuilder. Uh, you have competed, uh, which is always nice to kind of have a chat with someone who's also kind of doing the do and uh, specifically bodybuilding, because obviously that's the thing that's close to my heights, heart. Sorry. So it's, it's great to have you here, Jake. Yeah, man. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Like I told you off air, this is like a very, very cool uh, like you said, like we've been aware of each other for a while. I remember being in your Facebook group way back in the day and um, back before the podcast name change. I remember that. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, dude, it's um, very, very cool to be here. Thank you so much. And uh, I guess one thing just to be, uh, I don't know, clear for people that are going to call me out. I didn't actually get on stage. I had to call it. I was like five weeks out when everything shut down. Right. Uh... So I had to call it there, but I did get very close and uh I have some unfinished business, so we'll get up there soon. I was thinking, I wasn't sure if I remember seeing photos, but I definitely remember you going through the prep. And so I just wasn't sure if I'd missed some photos, but man, yeah, you picked the wrong year to have done picked it, the wrong I guess. Year. <laughs> uh, we got pretty lean. I mean, I got, uh, like, I usually walk around somewhere in like the 185 to 200 range. And I think the lowest I hit was pretty much, I think, like 160 on the dot, I think. Okay. Uh, glutes were starting to come in a little bit. Um ab veins the whole so we were getting pretty close yeah um i got most of what i came there for anyway right is is about the journey more so than the stage but um i think those last few weeks have something special that i didn't quite get to experience so we'll head back there pretty soon you around 510 bit around that yeah 511 
yeah, five eleven. The yeah, it's like just because those weights sounded familiar, and I was like, yeah, yep. it sounds like you're probably around the, the, my sort yep. of height. So it's, yeah, it's funny how much of us. I mean, it's the the law of averages, right? There's going to be <laughs> most sure. of us are probably going to be hanging around that unless you're some kind of genetic phenomenon and yeah, right. or so we're, we're not. almost tall, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, almost, almost. I was squat shoes about six foot. <laughs> yep, that counts, right? Yeah. Uh, do you have plans actually talking about bodybuilding? Do you have, I guess, your studies and you're a PhD student that's probably taking priority. Are you planning to compete? Have you got plans to compete again? Yeah, man. I think um, so. Originally, my plan was to do it this year, like this coming fall. Um, but I had some uh, unforeseen uh, things come up, you know, recently. Like I had to get hernia surgery like four or five months ago. Um, so that, you know, you can't train lower body for a few months. That doesn't help a ton. Um, just, you know, random stuff like that and just, you know, high stress levels with some stuff and, and whatnot. So anyway, now I'm finally back feeling healthy and normal again. So I think the, the plan is to, I want to do a little bit of a cut here for, I don't know, six, eight weeks, something like that. Nothing crazy. I just want to kind of, uh, clean up for lack of a better term, just, you know, some of that extra body fat that was gained you know, when not being able to train very, very well and, um, soothing myself with food a bit more than is probably recommendable, but that's okay. Um, so I want to do that for a little bit and then spend a little bit of time in a surplus to kind of rebuild some of that lost muscle. Uh, this has actually been eye opening for me. Like you don't lose as much muscle as you'd expect. Um, you know, so that's, that's actually pretty cool. Um, a little bit of a takeaway, at least for me, uh, and is one, right. So it's, you know, not the best, uh, experiment for that, but it's still interesting. Uh, but anyway, so I want to rebuild a little bit of that, feeling like I'm in a good place. And then uh, as soon as I have that, I want to pull the trigger. So I think my guess would be maybe 2024. Uh, be super cool. I don't know, you know, spring or fall. We'll kind of see what the uh, timeline's looking like, especially with PhD and everything. But, um, you know, in, in a weird way, I kind of want to do it while I'm really busy, just so I don't have to think about food all the time. I'm just going to be going, you know. So that was a lesson I learned from last time. Um, that was actually during my undergrad still, but even then, man, it was like the more busy I can stay, you just don't think about food and you don't feel hungry and you're on your feet all day. That helps a lot. Um, there was a, a weird, like increase in focus, the more hungry and depleted I felt for whatever reason. I don't know how to explain that, but I was like, Hey, that sounds good for trying to do uh research. So, uh, that's the plan right now anyway, but we'll, we'll see how the cards shake out. That's very exciting. That's sooner than I was actually anticipating you were going to say, which is really cool because I don't know if you have federations in mind or anything, but um, I'm considering 2024 and I'm just like, the more people that are saying they're also doing that season, you know what it's like when you have other people you're following along social media, it's like you build one another up and bodybuilding such a like isolated and kind of secluded sport that it's nice to have other people that you can be like, oh yeah, you're also suffering. <laughs> yeah, oh, for sure. What uh, are you thinking like early, late? 2024 it would be late just because i hope i can qualify for worlds and maybe be at wmbf worlds maybe yourself uh, will be there no no i'm not that <laughs> maybe no. in the same category <laughs> <laughs> no i'll be like ultra lightweight at that point compared to you but um no dude if you're aiming for late 2024 maybe i'll aim for that too we'll do it together yeah it's I'm, I don't know, I'm imagining quite a few people, well, obviously, like there's so many people in our like circuit. So I imagine there's, there's a number of people doing it, but yeah, it's just always nice. I mean, like you said, initially you kind of do this for the journey and that process. And if you, you don't enjoy that aspect of it and you're just doing it for the outcome and the trophy, like that's, that's not, 
that's not it. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I'm not super stoked to be up there in a in the trunks, right? Like it's just like it's fine. I'm I'm sure there's things about it that I'll enjoy and and that it will be uh, you know a really cool experience. But like to me, it's all about the like it was. This sounds kind of funny, but like it was like a spiritual experience for me. Like it was, I learned so much about myself and about life and about um, empathy and just everything. And um, that was, uh, I think that was Alberto that said that a long time ago, right? Like best thing about prep is it uncovers things about yourself that would be undiscovered, you know, without it. So uh, that's what it's all about for me. And um, I think other people who are like that, I think you're similar and um, other people who enjoy that part of it. I'm like, those are the people that I really vibe with and have the best conversations about it. Like seeing new striations like that's cool right like we can talk about that that's cool but some of those deeper life lessons and stuff like that's what i love man that's what's really fun yeah and you mentioned it being you kind of wanted to do it yeah it does sound completely kind of opposite to what you'd want in terms of you want to do it when you're busy maybe stress yeah. is a bit higher but there's something i understand definitely about being busy and like you can almost separate yourself from bodybuilding because like i don't know people probably understand this like sometimes rest days or deloads they're some of the hardest times because you've just got the time to like think you're not just doing oh. whereas when you're busy yeah and especially when you're dieting like if you're just you got a whole weekend free it sounds amazing it's just like yeah but now all i can think about is food like i, mm -hmm. I want to don't know record a podcast on the weekend or maybe start some new clients up and do a couple of training sessions walk around outside with my parents or something i don't know do something that just keeps me occupied because yeah it's you don't want to have all the time in the world to think about it because then i don't know you're just going to peak week research for like <laughs> become a monk and know everything about sure. everything but nothing about anything <laughs> exactly yeah for sure so that's exciting so that's really cool what um I, I kind of wanted to get into a bit of your background in terms of like what took you to the muscle physiology lab what took you into wanting to become interested in research I, I guess you were already bodybuilding before you went into research that relates towards like muscle hypertrophy and things like this for sure um yeah so I guess all the way back, I guess I started just like most people, right? Like just like wanting to look different. Um, you know, I grew up like I wasn't like I wasn't bullied or anything like that. Like I was I think a lot of people actually are. So I'm unfortunate in, in that sense. But um, I still was a little bit uncomfortable with with my appearance and just wanting to, you know, build some muscle, lose a little bit of body fat, that general thing. And uh, got pretty shallow, really, into that rabbit hole before I stumbled across this guy named Lane Norton. And I was like, oh, people get PhDs in this and they actually, I can really trust what they're saying because you you immediately see all of the, you know, conflicting information and whatnot, right? So when I just, I came across him very early and I think that's a huge influence on me is just seeing you can, you can do science with this stuff, right? And you can have a, a training program and, and nutrition that's rooted in something. It's not just in the, oh, I, this worked for my other client or whatever. Um, so I think that was a really big influence and in, in kind of planted that seed in my head of not only can you train like this, can you go to school like this, but you can have a career in this, right? Cause, uh, I was working retail at the time and I was very unhappy and felt very trapped and made minimum wage and everything. And I was like, man, what am I going to do? So, uh, when I found that, I was like, oh, I could coach people. Like I could do this kind of thing. So that was an immediate interest of mine. Um, uh, of getting into coaching. I was like, man, well, how do I stand out? Oh, I can get a PhD. That was where my head went immediately. And uh, here we are, dude, which is so crazy. I mean, that was, I don't even know when that was, eight years ago or something. 
um, when that idea just popped in my head and I was like, man, okay, I guess we're going to do that. So I just went, I don't know, I just started and um, did my undergrad at a school that was close to me as, as you do. And uh, when it came time to think about grad school, I was like, you know, what, what am I going to do with this? And I remember seeing, um, you know, this guy named Mike Zordos on, on a pod. It was actually Lane Norton's podcast, I think, back in the day. This is his older uh, physics yeah. science radio that, that he was on. And uh, he was talking about his master's program down at FAU. And they do this research with RPE and, you know, all the like the kind of research that is not bodybuilding. It was a little bit more strength focused at the time, but um, it's around that, that general area. And you just don't hear much. Of, there's not a whole lot of programs that do that kind of thing. Um, it's more common now than it was then, but still, like it, it was pretty rare. And I heard that, and I was just like, "Man, how crazy would that be if I someday someday get my master's with him?" And then I just applied, and we got in, and, and you know, there we go. So um, it's pretty crazy how it all turned out, to be honest. But uh, it was just sort of like it just kind of built it on itself, or built on itself, excuse me, of seeing being exposed to these people on podcasts or youtube or whatever and being like i really like what they're doing how can i learn from them or how can i get exposure to them or how can i you know network and and try to you know just become it, it sounds it sounds it's really arrogant actually to think of myself back then thinking this but like how can i eventually be a peer with these people yeah um, you know so that i did that the school route obviously right trying to apply here and i eventually got in and um, met the other guys that did driven strength. All three of us are here, PhD students, right? So, um, then we have Drake as well out at, at a, a, a different school, but, um, so like that connection obviously built and, and that's, uh, coaching, but also research is a big thing, big part of what we do. Um, my own personal lifting journey, uh, reached out to Ryan Doris for coaching. He coached me for a few years. Um, I had to pause it. Uh, a little bit here recently just to save some money and stuff, but, uh, South Florida, very expensive if <laughs> people don't know, but, um, yeah, man, he has, you know, all, obviously all the connections and learning from him is, um, he essentially became like my coaching mentor, right? Like it, it yeah. was, uh, it pretty quickly evolved from just like a coach client thing into like a genuine friendship and mentorship type of thing. And, um, endlessly grateful to him as like, I would not be here without him. Right. I can very honestly say that. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's, that's sort of the, it just kind of spiderwebbed out from there, you know, seeing some certain people trying to put myself in a position to be around them in some capacity. And then, uh, you never know how things grow over time, dude. It's, it's pretty, uh, yeah. it's pretty crazy. Sounds like there was a, well, I guess a lot of you guys at the data driven strength had probably a similar like transition into things and, yeah. uh, saw the same sort of opportunities that I, uh, I don't know if this is right for me to, well, I, I can ask you're not a, a female, although I have no idea if this is an inappropriate question to ask in 2023. Are you late 20s, early, like you 30 yet? Yes. Yeah. So I, I'm a little bit older than the other guys. I'm, I'm 29. I'll be 30 sure. in like two months. Yeah. Um, I had like, after I graduated high school, I tried to go to college right away for engineering because that's just what we were supposed to do in the town I was from and hated it. And I was like, all right, I'm not going to do this. So I dropped out, just worked full time for like four years. Um, in the middle there is when I discovered lifting and I was like, Ooh, I want to do this. So that's when I, uh, went back and, uh, and here we are, man. So I'm the reason I ask is cause I think uh, when I discovered people like Lane, uh, Lyle McDonald, my passion for lifting and also the scientific side, I was post 
university so i'd already like not missed that opportunity of course i could go have gone back and i could have like uh studied everything but i just went into the personal training route because that was a more kind of quick fire way to get into what we're doing so i think if i was again i'm in i'm 33 now so if i was a good like four years like where you are like uh, five years younger and maybe found it at the time you did obviously like part of me discovering all of this was actually at university because of everything that kind of came out from there but it's just interesting to see that and where people land themselves and it's crazy also to me kind of similar to you like you're working with Mike Zerdos it was crazy to me to learn from someone like Eric Helms online and then eventually interviewing him on the podcast and like almost essentially calling him a friend maybe a colleague on on some levels as he's a coach too it's it's just absolutely mind-blowing where yeah life can take you and the experiences if if you want it like i guess 100%. that was key for you yeah i mean I, I like luck is such a big part of it right like i, I think it would be um incorrect to not acknowledge that but this like it's not all luck either you know i think some of it is trying to put yourself in position to like when that luck comes around then you can benefit from it like trying yeah. to like uh prepare for the opportunity before it's actually there type of thing um so i think it's some combination of both right but um Luck is, a, luck is a big, even just like the fact that we're living in 2023, right? Like yeah. we have the internet without the, like 50 years ago, we couldn't do this, right? So yeah, you gotta appreciate that luck, I think. For sure. No, I, I, I see it similarly with the, the not the, the Revive Stronger podcast is like huge or anything, but it, within our niche, it's one of the, the better known podcasts. You're doing pretty and, good, man. <laughs> um, we're doing all right. And I, start, and I think part of that was luck. Like I, I started at a time when there weren't so many, it, there weren't that many podcasts. Sigma Nutrition was like the only other one that was like very big in the space, maybe. There was probably more. But uh, yeah, it's the, like you said, it's kind of like genetics. They load the gun. Luck can maybe load the gun, but you've got to pull the trigger and put in the work. Uh, so th- there's more to it there. I know off, off air we were talking about your dissertation that you're working on. And you said that that's pretty interesting. We haven't we didn't dig into it off air. So I'm excited to kind of hear a little bit more about that because, uh, yeah, I think it sounds like people are going to be interested if I am. <laughs> people will be very Your listeners in particular are going to be interested. Um, so... Essentially, what I'm doing, is, we don't have 100% of the details fully nailed down yet, but uh, it's essentially going to be volume autoregulation and looking at how can we better fine tune how much volume we do, how many sets we do for a given muscle group in a session and using various objective um, autoregulation methods like performance and also some subjective things like pump, soreness subjective recovery and whatnot how do we use these things to try to fine-tune on a session-to-session basis how much volume we're doing Um, because i think right now uh what most people are doing is a lot of those kind of auto-regulation things right they're using performance they're using pump and soreness and whatnot but we just don't have data on it so you know my question is i think the same as a lot of people who are skeptical of those things which is like is it actually better? Like, uh, of course, theoretically, it should be better, right? To, to listen to that feedback within your own body and, you know, adjust things in, in real time like that. But uh, as we know from the RIR research, for example, people are prone to errors with things, right? We don't always perceive things accurately. So um, trying to, you know, directly compare uh, sort of within subject, right? One limb, I'll do probably biceps, um, doing an auto-regulated method where the other limb is just always doing the same number of sets every session, regardless of how they feel. 
Um, and of course, we'll set that up so that that fixed arm, you know, we'll be very, very confident that they're going to grow. Right. And we'll because we, we don't want to, you know, hamstring our own <laughs> results. Yeah. We want to make sure that we, you know, that it's a fair comparison. But um, but yeah, man, I'm very, very excited. And I think it's going to get at a lot of the things that people have been doing in the field, um, you know, in, in recent years, and in large part, thanks to uh, people like Mike Isertel and yourself and people who have who've been talking about this for quite a while. This isn't my idea, right? Like this is this has been in the field. It's just not been in the research yet. So uh, I'm I'm very much looking forward to it, and, and I think you know we'll have the the direct study on it, but we'll also have some uh, uh, a cool meta analysis to try to get at that question as well. That um, in the I'm in the middle of that whole process now, and like man, it's like I've gained a great appreciation for meta analysis. I'll tell you what, but oh, um, but yeah, man, I'm I'm, I'm very very excited, and, and I think that it's going to be. Um, well, we're we're gonna find whatever we find, right? So maybe yeah. I find nothing. Maybe there's no differences or whatever. But um, I'm my hope is that we find something interesting to give people more confidence in how they train or how they program for their clients or or whatever, and sort of uh, you know how we go about uh, individualizing and sort of optimizing things specifically for muscle growth a bit more. Um, we talked about this a little bit too. Like the strength stuff is cool, but hypertrophy is more my uh, my my interest. So. Um, so yeah, man, it's going to be awesome. We got, I don't even start it until like January. So it's going to be a minute before we get results, but uh, it'll be cool. That's, that's super exciting because yes, yeah, like you said, those kind of, those auto-regulated methods, I think, uh, our Renaissance periodization have like an algorithm, uh, that uses some of those proxies to like suggest whether or not you add or remove sets and they've obviously had their spreadsheets uh, i think they kind of had some sort of algorithm in there and equation and now they have their ai app which i think uses some of these markers having seen screenshots and things and i should actually get um an opportunity to try using that at some point awesome. and i've also used these uh since having learned them and i think they're, they're things that were entrenched within like bodybuilding of course like how did bodybuilders originally auto-regulate any like aspects like oh i don't really feel like my chest worked that hard let's do another set oh i got a better pump disruption it feels pretty fucked i'll leave it there type right. of deal and then mike kind of formalized that and made it more kind of uh, i guess objective if possible it's very mm -hmm. subjective in some ways which i'm sure you you, you also relate to and then yep. yeah but some of us have ran it ourselves and it's something i have found personally almost invaluable in the short term to inform volume demands and i am like you said very aware of its limitations because like yeah some of the, these things are just correlative really with hypertrophy so and then uh, i don't know if if you have much i imagine you've used it with yourself and maybe clients too but like it's different even between muscle groups, between people. Uh, again, yep. it's subjective. So you're not with them being able to assess and explain it. So uh, I'm interested even like how you're maybe describing some of these things and how you're going to walk through the the individual who's doing it. Yeah, um, man, there's so many. There's so Sorry, many I points. threw like, a lot no, at you. <laughs> you're good, man. Like I, I'm just like, I can't agree more with everything that you're saying because it really is, um, it's complicated, man. Like it, even even just saying it in its simplest form, it still is kind of complicated. <laughs> like just the idea of using those those metrics to try to adjust things. And when you really think about like everything we're trying to juggle along with that, like it really is a lot. You know, you try to think about even pump, for example, right? We just take one of those proxies. How accurately can we perceive, you know, a two out of 10 pump versus a five out of 10 versus a, you know what I mean? Like 
we there there certainly is a magnitude thing where where certain pumps feel different from others, but you know how how well can we really you know have fine tuned ratings of those things, or is it because of your diet that day? Is it because of you know whatever you're just extra hydrated when you're training, or it's you know the temperature and humidity is different or whatever? So um, it's never going to be perfect, and uh, I think that's okay, right? Like it, you know it, with something like free living, very dynamic situation like training, we're never going to have something that's perfect. I, I think the idea is just trying to get as close as we can. Um, and then uh, there's always going to be that subjective like judgment call people are going to have to make. And we all have our biases. Like my bias, probably similar to a lot of the listeners, is that more is better. And uh, getting away from that has been very difficult, right? And it's been a big learning process. And I think that's always going to be a thing for people. Um, you know, so I, I don't know. I, I think we just try to get, try to improve the tools as much as possible so that people can, you know, be as rational and as objective as they can. And obviously coaching is, um, I was just talking to somebody else about, uh, like AI with, with coaching. And, um, I think this is one of those areas that like gives me comfort that AI is not going to make coaching obsolete. Cause I think that, uh, you know, these tools are never going to be perfect and we're always going to need that sort of objective outside eye to look at things and, and help, you know, think through, you know, why are these inputs giving us this output? Or is there some input we overlooked and we're not thinking of or whatever, and trying to, you know, adjust for those limitations of the tool and, um, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm losing my train of thought a little bit on where I was going with that. But uh, I just, I don't know, man, I, I think that it is just one of those things that I'm excited to improve the tool for people, but I want to make sure that once we have, once we're at that point, well, I guess, assuming we actually improve the tool, <laughs> maybe we don't, um, like I said, we'll find what we find. But I think once we get to that point, it's, it's going to be very important to really keep the findings in context of, of everything else. And, um, there's going to be limitations, you know, all the way up the ladder with, with everything, you know, even with the actual research, people don't, people often don't think about how many limitations go into to research. So you know, we we'll want to be cautious with everything, but, um, yeah, I hope it's, I hope it's helpful. I hope it's cool. Yeah. Um, if nothing else, it'll be fun to do and, you know, we'll learn a lot. So I'm, I'm very, very interested in it. I'll definitely have to get you back on to discuss it. Uh, I know one of, one of the, uh, the things when you describe like the, the pump disruption kind of soreness, obviously performance being key performance is easy for people to think about because you don't have to worry about that one. It's not subjective at all. It's very objective and, and, and very important. Like it fundamentally comes ahead of all the other ones. But I know for me, when I'm using these tools with myself and clients, at least what I've learned is you, you have to look at all of them and like, you can't rely heavily on like one or the other. Sometimes, for example, like for me, like if I rely heavily on soreness, I'd be doing stupid number of sets for some muscle groups that yep. I don't know if they'd ever get sore performance would drop before they got sore just would happen for sure. Like lateral delts. I don't know when I ever had sore lateral delts. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Never happens for me, yep. but like the, I can get like, so as an example of my quads, for example, like they don't often actually get like crazy soreness in sessions, that kind of fullness of pump and disruption is clear indicator to me more is not required in this circumstance but if they get recovered like for the next session great but it's not like oh i should do more volume for that session therefore it's like no no, no. when you come to that session again if the same number of sets still get you that huge crazy like stimulus i'm not adding sets in that scenario so it's like 
I've had to, from using these proxies myself in sessions and then trying to educate clients on that sort of new level of nuance, that's where it becomes, yeah, kind of challenging in many ways. I don't know if there was any points there that like made you oh, yeah. reflect on. Uh, all of it, I mean, I, I, think <laughs> the, I think the biggest one immediately is like every muscle group's a little bit different, right? Like uh, I have the same experience with my quads, like they rarely get super, super sore unless it's like a, a brand new movement I haven't done in forever. Um, but uh, then I have like hamstrings that are always super sore. Like I could do one set of RDLs and I can't walk for three days. Like it's weird, you know, um, whereas some of those other biceps, side delts, whatever, they never get sore, <laughs> you know, so everything's a little bit different. And uh, um, you're, you're very right that I think we always need to look at everything together because uh, even per like performance, like we said, is sort of the most objective one. But if you're using RIR, it's no longer perfectly objective, right? So like in the research, we're going to have to train to failure on every set to keep it as objective as possible. Um, but then there's another limitation, right? We try to apply that to someone training at two or three RIR. All of a sudden, maybe things change a little bit, you know? So um, it's uh, things are never as, as simple as they as I would like them to be. Um, but, uh, but that's okay. I think that's also a fun thing about it too, right? Like if research could give us a perfect recipe for everybody, that's not fun. You know what I mean? Like part of the enjoyment is the puzzle and the, you know, seeing like I try this. Oh, that didn't work, but it did work good for my quads. I need to work on my hamstring stuff a little bit or whatever, you know. So I will uh, always evolve. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things about bodybuilding in particular. Um, strength is a lot of similarities, but I think bodybuilding especially, there's just so much room to like be in touch with your body and really. Um, the the internal awareness like just has to be so good and i think that that serves us very well outside of the gym um i think it serves us better outside the gym than it does inside just because there's more things going on uh, outside the gym but um yeah man it's it's like prep right it's those life skills that you learn that uh, really make the journey worth it i think yeah yeah and i think um this research like in your like to do a meta-analysis on something relating to this subject like i think it can be like super invaluable for for bodybuilders to validate that if it, if it were to validate that method now if it didn't right. at all <laughs> then i'd be like oh crap we're back to like baseline right yep but it just because like you you'll see this with your own clients but if i gave everyone the volume my biceps need i was used biceps as an example just because for me they're a very strong point they, a lot of people, you know, some people might lose muscles, like some, for a lot of people, it'll probably just be maintenance. And maybe some people like me would end up growing some, but like, again, it's so I've only come to understand that through those, some of those proxies where I'm just like doing another set here just wouldn't make any sense. Like, so I, I think that could be, uh, yeah, that research is going to be very exciting. Uh, do you have any timelines on it at all so that people have an idea? Um, well, we're, my actual the longitudinal training study is scheduled to start right around the new year or thereabouts. So uh, the goal is January. Uh, so uh, obviously some of that depends on just, you know, how efficiently things move along, but um, we've been doing good so far. So that's the goal. And the meta is, it's important that that gets done before I'll put it that way. So um, then obviously, you know, the, there's a time frame of you know actually getting it published and that kind of stuff but um that's my goal anyway is to get the meta done you know before the end of the year 
and uh, you know have that out, and that'll be a a cool thing and and hopefully useful. Uh, maybe it's a neutral thing because, like you said, maybe we find nothing and you know whatever. But um, finding nothing is still interesting though, and still still valuable, I think. But um, anyway, so that's that's the the rough goal at least is have the meta done sort of by the end of the year, and then jump into the the training study uh, early next year, and then you know that'll take um, probably around the year uh, twenty twenty four to get through, um, just because of um, you know time frame limitations of you know, the university students are our subjects. So we're sort of beholden to the semester schedule and, and that whole thing. So um, I, I think we'll probably need two full semesters to, to do all that data collection. And um, that'll take basically all 2024. And then it's just, you know, trying to get that out. I don't know if we'll be able to do it end of that year, maybe early 25 or something. But so it's going to be a, a minute. Research is uh, slower than we would all like it to be, but um, such is life. I guess as well. Do you do you already have a pin down length of time that the study is going to run for? Because I guess I don't know how you measure in hypertrophy, but for like a bicep to have grown, I don't know. It, I don't know how advanced these kind of lifters going into it are either. But sure. it's a tricky yeah, one. Um, yeah, we're we're probably going to be. I want it to be as long as possible, right? So basically, what I need to be able to do is just get it done in one semester. Uh, that way, I can have two cohorts of subjects to go through, right? Just because from a logistical perspective, I, I can't take 20 people through in one semester. We just don't have the time. So um, if I split it into two, then that gives us basically 15, 16 weeks to get through an entire cohort of subjects. So because, you know, some people aren't going to be able to start on week one or they're just moving in from out of state and they need to get it settled before they start the study or whatever, you know, we're probably looking at somewhere in the eight to 12 week range. Um, so I, I need to, uh, I'll still pin that down, uh, you know, pretty soon here, but, um, I want it to be as long as possible. It just needs to be, um, realistic. And are they, the people going into it, will they be trained or you, yes. I guess, okay. Yeah, they, they will be trained. Um, I'm trying to remember the average training experience that we have in our current study. Um, I don't remember you, you the most of the people that come in have been lifting for somewhere between you know two and six years i would say on okay. average um, so i mean they're, they're solid you know some, some of them are are more novice than others of course right but um in general it's a it's a pretty well-trained population and um some of this a lot of the studies we've done have we've reported like squat one rm and that sort of thing and usually they're squatting like one and a half times body weight at least uh which is not super strong right but it's certainly someone yeah. who's trained before um you know so we'll uh i want it to be people who are as trained as as we can get um you know but then you know we're again it's at a university right so we're sort of most of our subjects are going to be the students that are you know 18 to 24 years old yeah. on average right so they're probably not going to be 20 years in the gym such a uh, good point yeah so it's uh, it's another one of those things man it's like you just things about research you don't know until you actually try to do it and it's like, oh, that makes perfect sense, you know? Yeah. No, that, I, I don't know why, it's just immediately, uh, I think it was, I don't know if you followed Brian Bornstein, and he did like an experiment of training, like he trained one arm, and I think he basically didn't train the other arm. I think so. And I, I can't remember exactly the outcome, but I think it was like, there was like zero difference, basically, I think. Something along those lines. There might have been more nuance to it than that. I'm sure uh, Brian might, may very well listen to this and comment uh, what happened there. But you don't want someone who's like, at their like peak limit in the study either yeah, because it's exactly. like oh, after 12 weeks i mean 
they could it's probably going to be like uh <laughs> it's a sweet spot right because you don't yes. you don't want that because we want to be able to d- detect a change but we also if they're not very well trained the internet's going to be like well, why didn't you get pro bodybuilders you know <laughs> yeah so, you want them also to understand a little bit because if when once you've been training for like a couple of years consistently i think you have an understanding of some of these metrics and the proxies yes. you're talking about whereas when you're brand new to the gym you're <laughs> like it's a yeah, bit tricky a i don't know <laughs> yeah you know? Yeah. Um, or, and I think luck, I think also the bicep is a good choice because like, again, like that's an area. If you've gone to the gym, especially as a male, like you've trained your biceps, you know what a pumped bicep feels like. like. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it's also, again, some of those logistical things, right? Like it's easy. We do, uh, what's called panoramic ultrasound scans. So like some ultrasounds that you'll see, it's like, they just put the probe in one place and it measures the thickness of the fat tissue and the muscle and everything. Right. Um, and then people started doing multi-site. So they would look at various, uh, points in the muscle. And then now what we're doing is a panoramic, which is, we look at the entire length of the muscle in one scan. So with that, uh, it's very cool, but certain muscles are much easier to scan than others. Um, so picking things like the bicep, that's pretty easy to get good, consistent, uh, scans in the sense of like. You know, we, we had to, everything's based off like the anatomical landmarks, right? The acromion process to the whatever. And um, so it's to be able to have things be nice and consistent and uh, and standardized like that. Like some things are just, are just tricky, right? So we're, we're a little bit limited, but thankfully the bicep kind of checks all the boxes. So, um, and we can do a, an exercise that we can kind of constrain the the technique pretty well. So that we minimize that yeah. I mean, variance between people and, and whatnot too. So. Do you not see the progress you would like? Are you sick of writing your own programs? Or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with the plan? Then it's time to start working with us. We at Revive Stronger offer a truly personalized coaching service. You'll get more than just an email with some macros or random cookie cutter program. With Revive Stronger, you will be the center of our attention. You will receive your own fully individualized training protocol alongside a customized nutritional strategy. We created the coaching around your needs, wants, personal preferences, and your own unique lifestyle. Every single week, we delve into your program in order to make appropriate adjustments so that we get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome. We help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue. No matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better, if you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level, our coaching is for you. It's time to make a change, sign up today and let's revive stronger. I'm guessing with this study as well, where you've got the people who have um, consistent level of set volume i'm assuming it's set volume uh that you're doing it by yep. then the people who are auto-regulating it some of them if they auto-regulate correctly you'd expect to even drop below the number of sets so it's not high like some people might hear this and just be like oh, of course they're going to be it's like high versus low and the high volume guys are going to grow better but there should be some people that drop below the average 100 i actually uh i i did what's called pilot testing which is basically try it out for yourself and see what it works, see if it works or not before you run people through the study and, you know, determine your entire degree on this thing that might not work. (laughs) So, um, I went through and, and, uh, tried it myself for, for a handful of weeks and, uh, seemed to work. Um, basically it was, you know, obviously like, you know, there's no stats on this, right? Like this was just my subjective experience that is completely open to interpretation and, and I can totally be wrong, but basically, um, 
I had the the one arm that was just doing a set protocol and the other arm was auto-regulating. And there were days where I came in, felt a little bit less recovered. Maybe I, you know, um, I just did the pre-testing quote unquote visit right a few days ago. So um, my arm was a little tired. So I had my uh, sort of, um, how do I describe this? So the, the idea will be with performance, there will be some sort of cutoff point. Once your performance drops a certain amount that, that will be individualized, um, that's when it will tell you like, okay, that's all your sets for today, right? Um, so with that, when I was under-recovered, I hit that performance drop-off sooner, so I did less sets. The next day, so I did like three sets or something one day. And then the next session I came in, I was like, subjectively, I felt pretty recovered because I only did three sets last time and I did six sets or whatever it was. I can't remember the exact number, but it was pretty, it, it made a lot of sense to me how it was adjusting up and down based on, um, you know, the the same performance cutoff, like a percentage um, uh, that, uh, that again, is in, was individualized to me based on the pre-testing visit. And it just really seemed... To correlate very very well with my subjective you know uh, recovery soreness pump all that kind of stuff um so we'll see maybe i'm the weird one um, or maybe i'm biased because it was my you know it was my study and you know i wanted it to work so um you know we'll we'll see but um it made me very encouraged and uh i mean obviously enough that this is what i want to do for my <laughs> for my yeah. phd right so um yeah man it's, it seems to work well going both ways which is very very important like you're like you're saying if one group just always, if one limb just always does more volume, then it's probably going to grow more, right? And then it's, is it because of the volume or is it because you auto-regulated? Don't really know. So um, we'll see how it all shakes out in the end, but there's at least the the potential for it to, um, you know, go up and down and and uh, now we just got to try it and see. And uh, I guess I, I think I, the way I described that question is I even forgot is an in subject. So like one arm's doing one protocol, the other arm's doing the other way, which is just perfect. And that again, makes sense why you're cho choosing the bicep because that just removes any kind of genetic variance because yep. it's the 100%. same person, same genetics. So yep, it's, it's great. It effectively increases your, your subject count, right? Quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, Cause then the, we can just pick up on differences so much better with, like you're saying, just so much less person to person variation so it, it uh, helps a lot and that, that's becoming more and more popular in the field to do it that way which makes perfect sense right so um yeah that's nice the only other question that comes to mind on it uh, i imagine you've thought about this because i just imagine you have do you um, have any difference between which arm you start with do you yeah, think that um, would because it's an isolation based movement i'm not thinking like from my experience if you start with one arm versus the other it's not gonna have a huge difference but that might be something someone would look at yep. yeah i don't i'm with you i don't think it'll make a huge difference but uh for the sake of keeping everything as standardized as possible um it'll be when people come in um they'll be randomized to um either their dominant or non-dominant arm doing whichever protocol and then as they're actually then that'll be set right so like for example let's say you're doing the study your dominant arm is always going to do auto regulation your non-dominant arm is always going to do the set protocol but then every session, every training session that you come in, you'll alternate which arm starts. Perfect. Uh, that way we just, yeah, just do our best to control for everything that we can. And, um, you know, so we'll, uh, yeah, do it. It won't be perfect, right? But we'll, we'll do everything that we can to make it as good as possible and then, uh, you know, apply it as such. Yeah. So. 
that's epic. No, I'm I'm very interested about that. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll probably, yeah, we'll have to revisit this and, and talk about it more. Maybe even when you're in the mix of it, potentially, I don't know uh, how kind of easy okay. that is for you to do, but um, that'd be very, happen. very interesting and informative. And I guess, because we have some time here as well, we can talk a bit about this first paper you published. So uh, it was the accuracy of predicted... Uh, Intraset, for some reason, my uh, it's autocorrected. Intranet is autocorrected it to intraset RAR in single multi joint resistant exercises among, sorry, single and multi joint exercise resistance exercises among trained and untrained men and women. So, yeah, I'd love to if you can kind of take us through basically what you did and maybe like what you found and then anything you have to say about it. For sure. Uh, well, first thing I have to say is we should have come up with a shorter title because that is just an <laughs> absolute mouthful. Um, but at the same time, we, we were trying to kind of highlight some of the novel aspects of it because, you know, um, you're probably aware, I'm sure some of your listeners are aware, like there, there's been a solid handful of studies on RIR accuracy um, at, at this point. And a lot of them have kind of looked at similar things, but it's been sort of growing over time. And um, the reason I wanted to do this study in the first place was this was actually during my undergrad. So this was like 20, 20, late 2018, early 2019 when I started this. Um, I just... <laughs> brazenly went up to the the professor who ran the lab and was like, I want to do my own study. Is that cool? And uh, told him my idea. And, and he said yes, for whatever reason. So, uh, so that was cool. But uh, my my thought with with it was like, there's just not much data on untrained people, which is important, because if people can only use RIR when they have a lot of experience, then like, what are beginners supposed to do? You know, so um, I wanted to get some data on that there, there is some uh, data with women, but I wanted to get more because they're just a, a very underrepresented population in general. Um, and then with the exercises being performed, almost all of them, it's been squat, bench press, chest press, leg press. One study did a seal row. And then one study out of our lab from a few years ago as well, if it's not published yet, use a deadlift. But that was it, right? So as I'm sure some people have noticed, that's all compound lifts. And um, just subjectively through, through my own experience, I was like, man, it's just, it's so much easier to judge like a bicep curl than it is a leg press. Right. So I was like, maybe there's some difference there, single joint to multi-joint type of thing. So, um, or just like total mass of muscle that's being involved, uh, which how I, how I've sort of, um, justified that in my head is that it's in its simplest terms, there's more muscle. It hurts more. It's more uncomfortable. So it's hard to tell your RIR. Right. Um, but anyway, so I wanted to test that no one had looked at single joint movements before. So that's why the, the title is so long as we were trying to highlight all those pieces to give it the best chance of, uh, of being published. But um, anyway, so what, what we did was, um, is actually a really simple study. Uh, people just came in and uh, we ended up with 58 subjects, which is a lot for, for this sort of thing. Um, but it was helpful that it was just one visit. It wasn't like a longitudinal thing at all. So that, that helped a lot, especially since I was the only one doing <laughs> the data collection. Yeah. Um, so that was a, that was a couple busy semesters, man, but People came in and they had, you know, the whole normal, you know, paperwork, informed consent, all that normal kind of stuff, right? Anthropometrics, which I always struggle to say that word, height and weight, et cetera. Uh, we learned about their training experience. Do they have experience using RIR, that kind of general stuff? And then we did three different exercises. So we had a bicep curl, tricep push down, and a seated cable row. And they were all done on a cable machine so we could, you know, manipulate the, the load, you know, nice and easy to keep it within a certain rep range. And uh, the, the ultimate goal with it was to do four sets to failure on each one. We aimed for like 12 to 20 reps on each set to keep it, you know, within a general, I hate to say this, hypertrophy rep range. Right? Sure. 
um, which people know what I mean. That's not scientifically correct, but we know what I mean. Um, so to keep it within that range, that way we could change the load a bit if they went outside that that range in either direction. But uh, to, to get that load on the first set, we did a 5RM and then used that to estimate 1RM and then took a percentage of that to get us in that rep range. Um, and uh, for the people that are, have already asked me that will probably ask again, we did 5RM because most people don't do a 1RM on tricep pushdowns and bicep curls, right? It feels kind of unsafe. So uh, that's why we did that. But we needed some sort of objective way to get that the load for that rep range, right? Um, but anyway, so that was the rep range we were aiming for. We did four sets of failure on each of those movements and they were done in random order to try to con control for that. Um, but basically, you know, just within each set, people were just trying to perceive their RIR and then so we could look at how accurate they were. So the other novel aspect of this was how, yeah. I was just gonna ask, um, people wanna know, cause a thank you to, uh martin uh from kind of showing how different failure like studies yes. review failure or kind of um have a i guess interpretation of what failure is how did you guys use that here yeah momentary failure momentary failure so perfect uh, no yes. one can complain <laughs> right so for the listeners who aren't aware right um you might see in a study um if somebody says momentary failure that's typically and in this each individual study should define it um or they should at least cite martin's paper uh for their definition but uh, momentary failure typically means they fail in the middle of a repetition despite maximal efforts to complete it. They cannot, right? So they literally are hitting failure. Um, something like volitional failure usually means that they don't think they can do another one, so they stop, uh, which usually people are correct, but not always, right? So it's not quite as uh, as uh, accurate, I guess, in, in that sense. But um, yeah, so th th thank you for clarifying that. I, I should have said that because you're, you're right. The, uh, sure. The internet guys are, are going to want to know that. So um, what we did that, that was novel with how we actually got the RIR calls is we did it um, a different way that was, um, I believe, both the strength and the weakness of the of the design. Um, and it was to me, it was worth doing because I think it was more um, ecologically valid, meaning it it's, uh, reflects what we do in practice a little bit better. So what previous studies have done is they either have people stop after a certain number of reps, rate their RIR just the one time, and then keep going to failure. So like some, some papers from uh, Hackett et al., for example, usually do this. They'll do like 10 reps, say I have X RIR, and then they keep going to failure, and then they can count backwards and see how off their prediction was, right? Um, some other studies have done, like from our lab, where people, will, they're going to failure, and then they never pause during the set. They just will say, when they believe they have certain like predetermined RIRs, they'll call that out. So they'll say like, uh, say three, when you think you have three RIR, that's that sort of thing. So before th there's been, uh, there's one study that they called out five, three, and one RIR. Um, there's a couple more that, that were really similar, but that was really it, right? So we, we either have a single prediction after a certain number of reps, or we have two or three predictions at certain specified RIR targets. And regardless, people can sort of back calculate how accurate the ratings were. What I did is I was like, man, we're not limited to rating it like that in practice, right? We can kind of feel it out rep to rep. So I, I wanted to, to see how that would go, basically, right? I wanted I just wanted to test it and kind of see how it worked. And would we find similar things or would, we, would it be totally different? Because it's just a different uh, methodology. So what I had people do is they would just do as many reps, whatever, once you feel like you have five RIR, say five, and then from that point on, after every single rep, tell me how many RIR you think you have. So theoretically perfect accuracy, 
would mean someone's essentially counting down five, four, three, two, one, zero, and then they fail the next rep, right? Um, that happens sometimes, um, but as I'm sure you can imagine, there are people that, you know, said five, six times. And then, you know what I mean? So some people were, were highly accurate. Some people were highly inaccurate. And it was just, uh, it was very individual. Luckily, having so many subjects helped us to, to really, um, you know, find some, some pretty useful uh, averages and stuff. But that was, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the results in a second here, I'm sure. But that, that was one thing that I always want to try to emphasize is that while the results are what they are, um, which is that people were generally pretty accurate, which is what we tend to find in this research anyway, especially close to failure, that there is quite a bit of individual variation where um, usually people aren't going to be off by 10, right? But there, some people might be off by one, some people might be off by three, whatever, something like that. Yeah. Um, but uh, before I go on to the results, does that make sense? Do you have anything I should oh, uh, specify? Yeah, it makes complete sense. Yeah, you mentioned like people aren't normally going to be off by 10. I think sometimes people <clears throat> will cite some literature where like people will, I think it's because of the way the literature was done in that they were like went into a gym, asked some people, yeah. what do you think your 10 rep max is? And then they did it and it was like, no, you had 20 on that. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's completely different how we actually apply yeah, RER sure. within like training, which is what yeah. you exactly demonstrated. The only thought I have is uh, just, it's more of a thought about it as I'm thinking about my own training and kind of in the gym. Do you think anyone, because they say like they're RER, do you think some people like almost not fake failure? Do, do you think that was possible for people in this study where they're telling themselves, well, I have two left. So they, at that one where they thought it was the failure rep, they just kind of let themselves fail. Do you think people do that? Um, so I tried very hard to make sure that didn't happen. I guess I you're observing be, them. So, yeah. And, and I'm like yelling at them, right? Like I'm, you know, I want to make sure they actually hit failure. Um, I think it would be naive to think that didn't happen at all. Just because, you know, I can be yelling at somebody and they can still fake it, you know. So um, I don't think that happened, uh, but I can't say for sure. It's, it's certainly possible. And um, I mean, that happens in the gym all the time, right? People get tired of doing the set. They want to be done. And especially, you know, some of those sets, people getting up to 18 reps or whatever, right? Like you want to be done at that point, you know, and, and I can't blame you. But, um, but yes, I, I did try my absolute best to make sure that didn't happen, but it, it, it could. I guess, yeah, I'm just thinking of, you probably had it where you're reviewing client form footage and you're seeing them go through their set and then they like stop halfway through a rep and you're like, they're like, yeah, I failed it. I'm like, what? Yeah. You look like you're like three left. <laughs> like, come right. on, man. Yeah, <laughs> like, speed is the same either, which I mean, the speed is, speed drop off is very individual, but still sure. you're going to see some degree of drop off, right? Yeah. So that's great. At, at least like you obviously you have lots of experience with it. You know what to expect, like. If their facial facial expression is like they don't look like they're they're stoic and they're not really struggling right. at all and they're just like their breathing is very normal they're not red in the face at all, mm-hmm. uh, you're kind of concerned that they they haven't really pushed it there. So it's great that the fact you have someone like yourself shouting at them in person <laughs> validates it way more than if they were just doing this on their own. Yeah, it helps. And, and the uh, I guess for the listeners, like usually in the in the if you're reading a full text there's usually going to be a statement in there. If people did that, there's usually some sort of statement like verbal encouragement uh, or things like that, right? Where if you see that, you can have, again, not always, it's not going to be perfect, but you can generally have a bit more confidence that people were actually pushing as as hard as the the method said that they were. Um, Like I can only speak for our lab, but like it gets crazy in there when people are one RM testing or going to failure or whatever. Like it is a lot of fun. 
Um, it actually makes me miss powerlifting a little bit, to be honest, when people are just really getting excited for their one RM tests and stuff. It's, uh, it's cool. But. <laughs> so I guess you, you kind of alluded to the outcomes there where between the subjects in terms of being trained, untrained, male, female, there didn't seem to be, oh, sorry, and then multi and uh, single joint movements, there didn't seem to be a huge amount of difference between. Right. Yeah, it's uh, what, what we found, uh, actually, line, I was a bit surprised, to be honest, that I, I was like, with this different methodology, I wonder if we'll find some different stuff or whatever. And, and we didn't, like, it, it lined up with all the other, the other studies that are like, generally, the closer to failure you are, the more accurately you can judge, which makes sense. We've all had that experience, right? Um, the As you do more sets, it's easier to judge, which again, we've all had that experience. You have very recent, like, oh, last set, I thought it was this, it was actually that. So now this set, I can judge it better, right? Um, and then generally, what the other thing that people tend to find is that the, the fewer reps you're doing in a set, the easier it is to judge, which kind of gets tangled up with the subsequent set thing. Because usually, if we're doing all the failure, you're going to get fewer reps set to set. So we try to control for that a bit with having that rep range and adjusting the load, but uh, but still. So anyway, we that was all the normal stuff we would expect to find. We did find that. Um, we've, in the prior research, there's some uh, indications that there might be a sex difference. We didn't find that. I think that's only been in one one study, maybe, maybe two. Um, but we didn't find that. There was no differences. And we had a pretty even split uh, between male and female. I think it was, I think we had like two more females than males or something. I, I don't remember the, I'd have to pull up the paper to, to give you the number. But um, anyway, so there's no difference on that. Um, no difference on if they had experience using RIR, which was interesting. Uh, that's actually the second study now that has used that as a as a factor, and both have found that it's not, <laughs> um, you know, indicative of their accuracy. So, not sure what to make of that. Really, um, no difference based on training experience, which is sort of the the finding that people seem to be interested in, um, you know, online. The other uh, oh, and then the exercise. So. Um, like I said, we had bicep curl, tricep pushdown as single joint stuff, and then seated cable row as the multi-joint. No differences between the two. Uh, I really thought there was going to be uh, some sort of difference. That, that surprised me quite a bit, but that's uh, that's what the numbers are, right? You can't argue with it. So um, that was kind of interesting. But then uh, I guess the last one is what we called the initial RIR accuracy or like the initial, I can't remember the exact, the actual term we used in the paper, initial RIR difference i think is what we called it which is basically the the first time someone said five right um which again like they may have said five multiple times or whatever but it's always the first time they said it and we averaged that across all the sets that they did and then compared that across people and stuff and that seemed to be a factor to some degree which is exactly how we would expect it to act which is if you're more accurate initially you tend to be more accurate in general <laughs> so not surprising but it did kind of pop up as significant so uh, so there you have it. But in, in general, the findings are pretty much no matter what was going on in, in this study, at least in the sample, people were pretty accurate. Um, the If I remember correctly, the furthest away that we measured um, in each of the individual RIRs, like actual proximities to failure, we looked at like when you're actually one rep away, how accurate was your perception or when you're actually three reps away or whatever. So when people were actually five reps away, I think they were only off by like 1.2 reps on average, if I remember correctly, which is pretty good, really. Um, and most people aren't trying to stop, uh, you know, at five RIR, right? So um, I, that gives me confidence that like, you know, that that finding, that general high accuracy combined with the initial um, RIR difference thing, which is like 
when people first call five RIR, they're usually not super accurate. They're, I think the average was like six reps away or something, right? So like that's pretty, or, or sorry, six reps of error. So they thought they were five, they were actually 10 or 11, right? So that's pretty bad. But then when they're actually five reps away or actually four reps away, they're pretty accurate. So to me, I'm like, don't try to stop at five RIR because you're probably going to be pretty far off on average. So maybe the furthest away that I would say to purposely try to stop is maybe four, um, which doesn't really change what we do in practice at all. But I, I think it's at least interesting to give us some amount of, of confidence in, in that practical recommendation that seems to work pretty well. You know? Yeah, it's it's uh, like any, like you, we kind of t- were talking off air. Like the take home from this is it's like we can have quite a lot of confidence that RAR can work for a wide, wide range of people, yeah. even for people who don't have much experience in it. Uh, I know the kind of the last uh, meta-analysis that looked at this, I think it was Halperin uh, 2021 and anything kind of sub 15 reps was like they were a rep or like less away from what they predicted RAR to be. And then 15 plus reps was where it was like a rep or more that they were away in terms of accuracy. So like we're talking, I mean, we don't, I'm sure you'll kind of confirm this Jake, but like people don't need to worry about being precisely three or two. It's like, we want to be in this range that's stimulative for growth because it's overloading for hypertrophy in terms of like relative intensity. 100%. Yeah, I don't, I, uh, I'm sure we've all had anyone listening to this or, or you yourself, Steve, whoever, whenever we're coaching people, I'm sure we've all had clients that are very like, it wasn't like, I'm not sure if it was three or two and a half or, and they get really, you know, worried about it. And it's like, it just doesn't, it doesn't matter that much, you know, like I, I try to think about like the spirit of the target, the RIR target, right? Like, are we trying to get really close to failure, but not quite cool, right? Was it zero? Was it one? Was it two? Probably good. Or are we trying to stay further away so we have more room to kind of ramp things up over the weeks and stuff? Then I don't care if it was three or four or six or whatever, right? Like it's close enough. And as we add load of reps across the weeks, you're going to get closer to failure anyway. So it kind of solves itself. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think you're spot on with that. Like we just, we just don't have to be perfect. And, um, I do think though, in light of, uh, of Zach's meta regression that we were talking about before, um, probably makes sense if hypertrophy is your goal, maybe err on the side of slightly closer to failure. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't think we should take that, that analysis to say like, we need to train to failure on everything all the time. Um, you know, in a vacuum set to set basis, maybe being closer to failure is better. But if we look at the overall picture, I think there's still a, a strong case to be made for having some some maximal work and uh, letting things kind of build, you know, over time before you deload, for example, right? So, um, anyway, yeah, yeah, that that com that kind of uh, meta regression, along with kind of knowing that, especially higher rep ranges were not as good at knowing our RAR, and like just the fact that higher rep ranges seem to be it's more important for you to be closer to failure. I'm like, if you're going to bias anything closer, it's like that higher rep range stuff, whereas the lower rep range stuff, we're more accurate with it anyway. And that has more applicability with RAR. We're not missing out as much on like the stimulus to fatigue ratio, like is favorable with the kind of leaving more reps in the tank. So yeah, it just like edged me towards that where I'm like, yeah, this isolation-based work, which is typically higher rep, mm-hmm. like we can go to the house a little bit. You mentioned being a bit surprised between uh, multi-joint and kind of single joint exercises. Do you think it was down to potentially being that row? Do you think the multi-joint exercise could impact the result? Even like I'm thinking upper to lower body maybe? Yeah, it could. Um, that's actually the, 
that's actually the um, comparison that's been made the most often is sometimes people will do like a leg press and a chest press, for example. Like some of the Hackett studies have done that. And they, you know, have found in general chest press or, or bench press seems to be more accurate than a leg press or a squat, which I think aligns with all of our experience, right? Or at least most of us, I'm sure. So um, my thinking sort of from that was maybe it is an upper body versus lower body thing. But then I'm like, well, well, why though? Like, you know, what if I have a huge chest and tiny chicken legs, right? Is it still going to be the same? I don't, I don't know. Um, so then I start thinking about maybe it's a total muscle mass thing, like I mentioned before, like just the discomfort that's associated with those high rep sets, especially. And, um, it just becomes really difficult. And, and like on, on a leg press, you can always kind of get one more, you know, like, uh, me, Zach and Josh joke sometimes like a true 20 RM on a leg press probably doesn't exist, which like it technically does, but just actually reaching failure on something like that is it's such a physical and mental skill, right. That, that most people don't, you know, uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to offend anybody, but it, it's pretty rare that people can actually really get there. Uh, I can't, right. I'm not going <laughs> to pretend like I'm, you know, really good at it, but anyway, um, so I think that's what I really wanted to do was like a leg extension versus a leg press, but I just didn't have that equipment in the lab. So it was trying to make do with this, uh, you know, is one of those, you know, just standing adjustable cable machines. Right. So, yeah. uh, just trying to make do with that. And we, I was able to pull a bench over to do like a chest supported seated row. And I was like, all right, that's, that's the best I can do. Um, and, uh, but you're right, you know, maybe it's, um, if the muscle mass in somebody, uh, like your back versus your biceps or triceps, like, yes, there is a difference for sure. Uh, but also, you know, keep in mind that these weren't pro bodybuilders, right? They're people that certainly had muscle, but they're not, you know, gigantic lats and everything. So, um, it could certainly just be that that's, that is my guess is that it's just one of those where the, the difference wasn't large enough to detect, you know, some sort of, uh, difference in, in how accurately people can judge, but, um, who knows? Maybe it is an upper versus lower body thing, right? I could totally be wrong. Yeah, it's it's interesting you mentioned the leg press and like how excruciating failure is because I know with Martin, he he ran his own study outside of his uh, meta analysis and he wanted to use the leg press and he ended he was using the leg press I think and bench press and he he had to get rid of the leg press because when he was training people to failure on that, too many people got injured. <laughs> so it's, it's crazy, like, right? Do you, crazy. you probably don't even want to go there? <laughs> no, we had the same experience. Uh, our is actually Zach's uh zach robinson for the listeners right uh his master's thesis where we had squat and bench press looking at proximity to failure and its effect on strength and hypertrophy and we had to stop like the failure group was discontinued because everybody was either getting hurt or had dis strong discomfort or whatever um and then even the group that was squatting to like seven to nine rpe uh which would be one to three rir right or uh, there was a group that did that but the last set to failure even that minimal exposure to it was too much we had to stop that too right so like my master's thesis which used the bench press data was supposed to have the bench and the squat data but we just couldn't use it right so it's um it's another one of those uh we, we talked before about like things about research you don't really think about until you yeah. get in and try to do it it's like some of the it's like some of these studies man where you know they're apparently doing dozens of sets of squats to failure i'm like Really? Like it's maybe, right? But it's just in, in my experience, it's uh I'm not super, super confident <laughs> always, right? It's it's just it's tough. But uh yeah. but yeah, man, it's yeah. And even down to I'm glad you mentioned it with the row you're using, it wasn't it was a chest supported row, which I think makes this uh better because I think that's harder to cheat. 
yeah, like, I think it's so. obvious when you're cheating a chess supported row. Whereas when you're doing like a non chess supported cable row, like it's so easy to use more momentum or like movement within the torso. And so like, it's like, where do you draw the line? Yeah, Whereas for actually, you, it's like very clear. Yeah. I actually had to throw two subjects out the first two who did it because I didn't have the chess support at first. Oh, uh, and uh two people I thought they did something like, wrong like badly wrong <laughs> yeah i was like huh this isn't gonna work is it so i do uh replace those two subjects but that's how it goes live and you learn right and i guess obviously you're a practitioner as well you've been training for years and i think for you it was surprising and it was surprising to me i don't know if on reflection it's less surprising or not it, i think it's still surprising to me that like you could I guess, use the two studies now that have come out and show no difference between people who have experience with RER and don't, that reps in reserve and training close to failure. And and this is something I hear a lot. I'm sure you've heard it, Jake, is like people like training to failure is a skill, like getting that high like level of intensity is like a skill. This completely says it's not. It's like RER <laughs> and training close to failure isn't a, tra- a trainable skill someone inexperienced has just as good ability to do it as someone experienced which again goes counter to so many what kind of lifters think yeah it's man it's it's so tough for me to i'm with you it's, it's tough to wrap my head around um i wonder if sort of paradoxically it, it it sort of reinforces that it's a skill even more in some senses just because you know i think about like people who are untrained who maybe are not as able to go to true failure which we have some data on that uh by the way also that's not just something that <laughs> that uh and, and you're probably aware of that like you're not just making that up like that is a that certainly is a thing um but it's it may be if people are just not able to truly go there and they can't judge as accurately anyway like does that kind of cancel each other out in a, in a sense to where um, that lack of, they're not paying for that lack of skill. Does that, I don't know if that makes any sense how I'm, how I'm saying that, but, um, like they're, they're not, um, because they can't go to true failure and because they can't judge it super accurately, maybe there's like some weird thing where if they could do one of those two things, but not the other, maybe we'd see, we'd see a big disparity, but because they're sort of in both of those, we don't, I don't know. I could just be completely making that up. Um, but it is in, Nevertheless, right, it, it is odd that uh, that we've now seen that. And again, it's, it's just two studies, right? So there's your cop-out uh, researcher answer of like more data will, will be helpful. Yep. But, um, you know, I, I think it might just be one of those things where if we had people not go to failure in the study ever, maybe we'd see a bigger difference um, be, between like people who have experience with it. Maybe they'd be able to judge a bit better. Whereas the people with no experience, they still got like... They did 12 sets to failure. You know what I mean? So like they, they get a lot of opportunities to anchor that feeling of what failure is. Um, so even if, you know, we're looking at means and standard deviations and stuff, right? So maybe their first set was way off. But then as they went on, they quickly calibrated and were able to rate accurately. Sure. Um, that's, that's my guess personally. Um, but uh, it still just doesn't sit right with me. It doesn't, it doesn't make perfect sense. So uh, my guess is, is it's, that it is that idea of sort of them calibrating over the study. And um, my guess would be there is some sort of impact there about just the experience using RIR, but we just haven't detected it in the studies yet, is my guess. Yeah, yeah I think that's fair. And I think it's, it's less concerning as well because untrained lifters don't need to be as close to failure as trained ones. Right. I, uh, and so well, it's... 
it's it's, for it. it's odd, right? Because um, I in practice, I agree with you. Some of the proximity to failure studies have actually shown the opposite, where if there's a benefit to training to failure, it's more evident in untrained people, which is weird. Sure. Um, okay. But um, but nonetheless, I, like in practice, I think that it's it doesn't make a ton of sense to have untrained people do that. Um, at least not frequently, right? Maybe every once in a while or something. But um, anyway, yeah, it's uh, sometimes research doesn't make perfect sense, man. But uh, it always will come around to it in the end, right? Like, I, what what gives me solace in that is that, like, I think back to some of the studies that have come out just over the years and what people have been doing for decades, and people are right almost every time, and yeah. the science just takes a long time to catch up. Sure. You know what I mean? So um, I, I think it'll eventually probably show us that picture. Maybe not. Um, but I'm just like, man, the, the bros were right pretty often. You yeah. know? So uh, they might not always be right for the correct reason, but they usually have the, you know, they're, they're doing good stuff in general. So. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. I, I always like to, I think it was um, Alberto Nunez talked about like how science is like refining what the bros were already doing. Yeah. So it's, it's like these length, it. length and partials the bros were maybe using excessive momentum on rowing because in the short, we're so much weaker than we are in the lengthened. Whereas now we can do a lengthened partial, which is a refined, better, sure. like sit stimulus to fatigue trade-off. Maybe like we don't have the answer there. It's just a hypothetical. For sure. The bros could have already had that right. Or like a tilapia, like it doesn't thin the skin, but I mean, it's a low fat, lean protein source. <laughs> so yep. maybe there was something good there. <laughs> yeah. I think you brought up the lengthened partials thing. Like that's another how do we judge our like that hasn't been in the research right so like that's the thing it's becoming more and more popular and um is it harder to judge our ir on that maybe you know depending on like that's been my experience at least like when i've done it i just go to failure right because initially I don't, it was harder yeah for I, me just, as well. I just don't want to um you know it's it's uh it's it's so cool man like, like i think that's to me that's what i love about science is that there's always these we feel like things are pretty figured out and then we get this thing out of left field that's just like, whoa, what do we do with this? And that's the length and partials thing right now, right? And that's, you know, the the new fun thing. And we were talking a little bit the other day about, you know, using it more in our own training with clients and stuff. And um, it seems to work well, right? And it seems to be, you know, we, we can integrate it into these programs and um, have it feel beneficial, but not like it's just this super crazy fatiguing thing or whatever. And, um, yeah, so... Uh, so I don't know who knows where that's going to go in the next few years. Like we, we have a study that um, is looking at that a little bit that we should hopefully get the results out, you know, before too long. We're in the analysis stage currently. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. That's, I don't know. That's just my overarching science thought, I guess, for this little tangent. It's just like, man, it's, yeah. it's so cool to have these new little things that catch us off guard and starts this whole flood of new research and new excitement and, and people are, then they look back at the what the bros were doing and they're like, oh, they weren't just lazy with their lateral raises, like, or there was too heavy, they're, you know, ego lifting, whatever, like they were actually doing the right thing and overloading the bottom of it, you know? Yeah. So it's, uh, it's so cool, man. I, I love stuff like that. Yeah, it's super interesting. And actually it brings us, it kind of almost loops us back around. Uh, someone was asking me, because I'd been posting about the length and partials and asking kind of how am I assessing how they're doing versus like full range of motion. And so I kind of then had like a like you'd use the same proxies or ways of measuring like uh, muscle growth as what you would for anything that you're doing. And so I kind of had these long, short, uh, kind of a short, medium, and long term kind of proxies. And my short term one was looking at 
what you mentioned here in terms of the pump disruption those sort of elements and it's definitely at least neutral if not superior and f for the length and partials and some of it just feels and i guess this is again coming back to like what the bros do and like they probably went off intuition some of it just feels intuitively right some of it actually feels intuitively wrong like on the leg press the length and partial doesn't there's nothing about that that feels right but maybe on like the leg extension, like not coming up, the calf raises for like um, pulling movements, it kind of feels right just to not worry about that kind of final portion of the lift. I don't know if you've not had that much experience just yet with it, have you? Um, I not certainly not as much as you. Um, I've done a little bit of it in the past couple of months, and it was like what I, the way that I'd been using it was like I would do a set normal full range of motion, let's say lat pull downs, for example, right. Um, just doing them as as per normal until I hit whatever two RIR or something, and then do length and partials for the rest of it, which is fun, right? It's sort of like a little intensity technique, whatever. Um, and I was trying to kind of ease in and, and wrap my head around like the looks I'm going to get in the gym, basically. <laughs> um, and uh, just actually the, this past week being at the ACSM conference, training with Milo, who for anyone who doesn't know, did the meta on... <laughs> length and partials essentially right um so training with him and, and just getting that uh just doing everything length and partials right we did squats we did split squats we did rdls uh the next day I did some bench press because we had limited gym we didn't have machines and stuff but um even just with barbell stuff like it felt felt pretty good right i was like oh this is like just that intuitive does this feel like it's working thing yeah which of course can be prone to errors, but for people who've been training for a long time, like I think we do build a, a pretty solid intuition. Um, it, it felt pretty good, man. So I, I don't know. Um, I'm definitely going to start experimenting with it quite a bit more uh, for myself. And um, I've been starting to layer it in slowly to some clients and stuff. And um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see where it goes, but it's, it's definitely uh, exciting. And if nothing else, it's like you said, it's a neutral thing at worst. Right. So, uh, it can break up some of that monotony and that's a net win, you know? Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. It's great to, yeah. See you kind of, uh, I guess you're some of the, I guess, younger researchers within like hypertrophy. I look at like Brad Schoenfeld's like the, the godfather of like yep. hypertrophy research. And now you guys are all coming up and through. And I know he's got a bunch of people on his team as well who are coming through and it's just great to see. And uh, it's great for me because it gives more podcast guests and more content yep. and we can spread more science and awareness of it all. Uh, so it's fantastic. And it's, it's been great chatting you to you, Jake. And like I said, I, I'd love to get you back on, but if people want to keep up to date with kind of yourself, uh, what you're up to, maybe your bo own bodybuilding endeavors, but also your research, where should people head? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much again for having me on, dude. Um, I'm like I said, to say it's an honor is an understatement. So I, I have been following your work for a very, very, very long time. So um, it was a pleasure. And uh, I would be more than happy to come on whenever, uh, whenever you ask. So um, I guess for, for my stuff, I guess Instagram, probably the best place, I guess, because uh, that's where I'll post about, you know, obviously just all our content and stuff in general, but, um, you know, my own bodybuilding stuff, uh, any research that we get that's, that's coming out, I always post about it on there too. So uh, that's just jake.datadrivenstrength uh, on, on Instagram. Um I think it's probably the best uh, place to do it. We have a podcast. We have uh, actually, uh, I'll, uh, I'll shamelessly plug our uh, nutrition course that's sort of specifically for uh, body composition in general, but also for people with simultaneous strength goals. There's some special stuff in there for them. Uh, but for bodybuilders, I think it's still super helpful. So 
uh, we have that course available on our website. It's pretty cool. Um, very happy about how that came out and uh, lots of cool stuff coming down the pipeline. And so uh, future is exciting for sure. Awesome. Thank you so much again. I'll make sure that's all linked in the description so people can check that out. And uh, I guess we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thanks, man. Losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It isn't though. It's reality and we know how to do it. And we will help you achieve this. The Minicup Movement is an eight-week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You will receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of the minicut so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do. But the best thing is that you can start whenever you want. The Minicup movement is open 24-7. So if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up, hit the link in the description below. So let's revive stronger together.